So if we think about physical sexual response, that is supported by the cardiovascular system. If you don't have good good blood flow, then you're not going to have reliable erections. If you don't have good blood flow, you're not going to have reliable vaginal lubrication. And so, you know, we depend on blood flowing into the genitals and those veins and arteries working well for those parts of our body to work well. So at minimum, we need sort of, you know, some level of movement, which is going to vary by person um, to support a healthy cardiovascular system for the body to work. Now for other people, exercise can also be a way that they connect with a partner. It can be part of foreplay. You know, they might like stretching with one another or exercising together. Um, For some people, a certain level of cardiovascular exercise is really what they need to feel like their strongest sense of sexual desire. Hi, I'm Pete McCall, and welcome to this episode of the All About Fitness Podcast. I'm sure that little soundbite just got your attention, and that's the guest for this episode, Dr. Deborah Herbenick. But before I go into the introduction for Dr. Herbenick, I want to take a moment to say thank you. Thank you for taking your time to listen to the All About Fitness podcast. And I mean this sincerely. I've had this belief for a number of years now. As a personal trainer, as a fitness instructor, as a public speaker, anytime that somebody does a workout with me or comes to a class or takes the time to attend one of my workshops, I want to make sure I provide you value for that time. So as a listener of All About Fitness, I sincerely appreciate you're lending me your time by giving me your ears and giving me your attention. Now, one of my goals for the All About Fitness podcast is to cover all aspects of the fitness experience. That not only means exercise, which is my specialty, but it means other areas of, of wellness and, and fitness as well. That includes nutrition, and I've had nutrition experts on here. That includes our overall health, and I've had medical doctors on here, and we'll continue doing that. And one area of health that we really that I haven't spent any time focused on with the podcast, but is very important to us as humans, is the area of sexual health. And I forget exactly how I came across Dr. Herbenick, but Dr. Herbenick is the author of the book Corgasm, or specifically the Corgasm Workout, The Revolutionary Method of Better Sex Through Exercise. And when I saw that and I read about the book and I read about her work, I knew that she would be a perfect guest to talk about the topic of sex and sexual health for the podcast. Now, Dr. Herbenick has her PhD in health behavior. She's a professor of sexual and reproductive health at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. On this episode, Dr. Herbenick and I talk about the role that exercise plays in sexual health and the role that sexual health plays in our overall wellness. Before we get into the interview, if you want to learn more about exercise, if you want to learn more about fitness, If you want to learn how to design your own exercise programs, pick up a copy of my book, Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple. I've been educating personal trainers now for more than 15 years. And in Smarter Workouts, I tell you what you need to know to be able to design your own workouts. The book provides you with 21 different workouts, but it also teaches you how to get a great workout using just one piece of equipment. Look for, the, look for the link down below in the show notes. That's Smarter Workouts, the science of exercise made simple. Now let's get on to the interview with Dr. Debbie Herbenick. Dr. Herbenick is a specialty in, how would you describe that? In, is it sexual health? Is that your area of specialty? Yeah, I study sexual and reproductive health. And how'd you get interested in that topic? I mean, what was it that, that caused you to go down that path? 
Um, originally, I was studying child and adolescent development, so not not at all about sexuality. But when I graduated college at the University of Maryland, um, and I saw that Indiana University was um, doing some research on child and adolescent sexual development, um, it was it was interesting to me, really, from a child and adolescent perspective. And I got the job and was a research assistant on the study. And while I was there, um, just found how little I knew about sexuality and sexual behavior and how so much of what I was reading in women's magazines and what I was hearing from my friends just wasn't accurate. So I think, you know, I was just, I realized I was confronted with um, the very limited sex education I had and was in a place where I could learn more. So I stayed there, worked, and then went back to grad school and decided to switch paths into sexuality. And I think that's fascinating because for listeners, I, I try to, what I want to do is be able to, to broach all areas of fitness and exercise and health, right? And, and definitely sexual health is a big component of that. And how would you define, doctor, how would you define sexual health? Oof, well, I think it's, you know, it's really broad. So um, there are some, you know, really wonderful broad definitions that the World Health Organization and others have put forward that address the issues of like the mental health aspects of sexuality, the interpersonal aspects and relational aspects. Um, you know, trying to make the point that it's not just about the absence of disease, for example, um, and also that you can be sexually healthy, even if you do have a sexually transmitted infection or other um, health problem affecting sexuality. But it's just this really broad, holistic notion of um, of your own sexuality, your capacity for pleasure, your capacity for enjoyable, healthy relationships if you want them. Um, and your, uh, you know, your agency and autonomy over your own body, which is particularly important for females around the world to be able to make their choices about, you know, pregnancy or preventing pregnancies or spacing them. So it's, it's a big concept and probably a whole nother podcast about what is sexual health, but, but it's an interesting topic. Well, no, and I appreciate that. And I, cause I told you before I hit record and for listeners, my father is an addiction was, is, was a therapist who specialized in addictions and addictive behavior. And about in the last 15, 20 years, in the last maybe decade and a half before his retirement, he, he focused almost specifically on sexual addiction. And that's been a topic in the news. It hasn't been the news lately, but a few years ago, there were a few um, a few celebrities that came out, doctor, claiming sexual addiction. How would you define, I guess a question that I would ask, and that, that I've kind of talked to my dad about a little bit, is where do you cross the line between having normal, healthy sexual behavior and into an addictive behavior that could be dangerous? Well, you know, sexual addiction is really its its own special area. And I would say that many of us in the field don't use the term sexual addiction because we don't actually see it really as, as an addiction issue. Um, but most people in the general population do view it through that term, because that's what we hear in the media. And so that is the term people use when they seek help, right? They say that I'm, I need help for a sex addiction or a porn addiction. And what usually happens with therapists is they're trying to help them understand, like, what does that mean for you? Why is it that you feel you have problematic um, sexual behavior? 
And it turns out in therapy that sometimes it is really problematic. I have friends and colleagues who are sex therapists who will describe some very extreme behaviors where people are risking their jobs, their families, their relationships in very extreme ways to satisfy certain sexual desires or um, or impulses. Um, but there are other times when it turns out in therapy that it's really not that big of a, the behavior itself isn't the problem, but the perception of it is. So for example, if some people have a partner who was raised in a family or home where porn was just seen as the worst thing in the world, then even if their partner watches porn once or twice a year, they might call that an addiction. Mm -hmm. And so there are some times where the therapist's job is really to help them reframe what's going on um, and to find, uh, to sort of make peace with it or to adjust behavior if they need to, or to reevaluate shame if they need to. Um, they may be ashamed of something that's really actually pretty normal and common. And and see, I think that's, as I told you, it's a little bit tough because here we are. I mean, you're a female, I'm a man, we haven't met, and we're delving into a pretty um, deep interpersonal area. So because why is it tough? Well, first, before I ask this next question, I just want to state that, that my father was a therapist in D.C., Washington, D.C., and a large percentage of his caseload or patient load came from the federal government and what are the, what is it, the employee, EAP, the employee assistance, basically a large percentage of his clients were people who are downloading images on their computer that they shouldn't have. And in order to, so you meant, you, you said exactly that in order to save their job, they had to go, it was part of the process. But anyway, so it's just to kind of qualify that because I appreciate that reaction. But why do you think people, the question I wanted to ask is why do you think people have, can be, have a tough time talking about their sexual interests or their, their sexual kind of their sexual tendencies, especially even with a, a loved one or a partner, because I'm sure that's been an issue in an area where you've kind of delved into where people maybe have a hard time expressing maybe their desires or their interests. And, and what can people do to maybe to break down that barrier if they feel they might have one? Well, I think there's a few things that are that are worth talking about here. I mean, one of the first things you brought up there was that you know, that you're a man and I'm a woman and we're talking about this. And to me, like gender just doesn't matter. Right. And I, but, I, but I think that that is salient to many people. They think, oh, wait, there's, you know, opposite sex people talking about this, but what do we even mean by opposite sex? Right. And, and all of that is shaped by how we raise boys and girls. So, um, you know, a lot of sex educators make the point that really good comprehensive sex education would support even young kids being able to talk comfortably about bodies and anything really within gender as well as across genders. But we haven't done that um, historically. So many adults in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s and beyond, if they got any sex education at all, what they remember is like in fourth or fifth or sixth grade, the boys and girls being split up and you know, and, but those are the things that that might make you say, "Hey, wait, we're a man and a woman talking about sexuality," because they make so many people feel that way, and that's such a shame. Because when people do get into romantic or sexual situations, you know, they're bringing all of that history in with them, which is often has a basis in, "Oh, we can't talk about these things together. We can't talk about these things across gender or across sex. They're sensitive. They're things we have to get." permission form sign for. There are things we don't talk about in our family or that our family says that's not okay or don't touch down there, it's dirty. And I think when we when we can really take a more holistic view of sexual health in our bodies, 
um, that removes a lot of those layers of shame or just awkwardness, right? Or or not having had the practice to do it. So, you know, I think for people who want to become more comfortable talking about sexuality, the very first step is just to do it. And I teach human sexuality. I teach college students. I've been doing that for 17 years. And, you know, they say to me every semester how important that lesson is that they should just go ahead and talk about it. And I don't tell, I don't overpromise it. I don't say it's going to be easy. I tell them it will be awkward. And it's not just that it's awkward once and then it goes away. If you change relationships or change partners, that first time you talk about sexuality, it's going to be awkward again. And that's okay, right? If you 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 know that you expect it, um, but what you get from it and the, the promise in it is that you get to open yourselves up. You get to make yourselves vulnerable to one another. You might feel more connected to the other person. You might um, have a few good laughs about how silly or, or awkward something is. You might find out that you like the same things. You might find out that you like or you're into some different things, but that's okay too, right? At least you can share that with one another. So you might ultimately create a much richer um, sexual life with somebody if you can get past those hurdles. And it again, it'll be awkward, but that's okay. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, in in my experience, I've definitely, I can definitely relate to that because absolutely you might have a tough time talking about something, but once you start kind of sharing that, sharing that it does, it it, it builds to a new level of intimacy. It does create a new level uh, of comfort within the relationship and a new, new level of trust. And I, and I think it, it, it can be scary to go down that road. And I think that's where people kind of sometimes, oh, I don't want to talk about that for whatever reason. But also, too, the one thing I like about being in my 40s is you worry a lot less about what other people think. <laughs> that's, that's one thing. So I think it's interesting. I think it's fascinating to have your college students in their late teens and early 20s be introduced to that because it does take a while for adults to, I, I believe personally, to become a little bit more comfortable about, hey, here's who I am and be comfortable in their own skin. Is that a big part of it? I mean, in terms of like the, the sexual health is just growing into that maturity of being able to be in comfortable in the own skin or, or developing that comfort level with self. I mean, that's a whole broad topic I know of psychotherapy, but just in terms of, of growth, the two come together. I mean, I think hopefully you understand what I'm trying to ask there. Yeah. I mean, you know, it is, it's personal growth and, um, and that's a big part of my human sexuality class that I teach. And, you know, I think what's, what's to me a little bit of, of, um, a loss in it is that we all, I think actually start out pretty comfortable with our bodies and pretty comfortable with ourselves. And, you know, there's a lot of ways that sometimes we raise children where we take that away. And Mm -hmm. so as adults, what we're really trying to do is get that back. Um, so if we're really supporting each other as partners or each other as like friends or learners, what we're trying to do, you know, with my, like what I do with my college students is try to get them back to that place where they feel good about their bodies or frankly, even just neutral about them. I mean, it's not that young kids are so proud about their genitals. They're just neutral about them because they're just another part of their bodies. And when they feel like it's just this another part of their bodies, they're not worried or ashamed or embarrassed about them. Um, sometimes they're pretty silly about them. They explore their bodies. And all of that is really normal and natural all around the world. Um, but unfortunately, many people start shaming young children, saying, don't touch down there, or don't do that, or that's dirty, or you know, 
Um, and, and, and it's really just a normal part of human sexual expression. So yes, like as teenagers and adults, being comfortable with, with yourself and opening yourself and being vulnerable to another person is a huge first step toward sexual connection. Excuse me. I know this is an exciting interview, but I'm going to break in for one moment and tell you about some exciting news. At the All About Fitness podcast, I am never going to put content behind a paywall. However, if you become a supporter of the podcast, you will get access to exclusive content that I am not going to make available anywhere else. So here's the deal. You can become a fan of the All About Fitness podcast by purchasing one of my ebooks, Dynamic Anatomy, Exercise for the Fountain of Youth, or Functional Core Training. Each ebook is $7, and if you purchase an ebook, you become a fan of the All About Fitness podcast. If you purchase a workout, I have a dumbbell strength training workout, a kettlebell training workout, and I have a functional core training workout. Each program is eight weeks long. It includes the workouts, it includes metabolic conditioning, and they include active recovery workouts. It's a great deal. Each workout is $12. By purchasing a workout for $12, you become a supporter of the All About Fitness podcast. To become a super fan of All About Fitness, you purchase a bundle. I have different bundles available. I have bundles of ebooks. I have the Dynamic Anatomy ebook and webinar bundle. I have the Functional Core Training and Dynamic Anatomy ebook bundle. Bundles are $19. So those are the three price levels. You become a fan by purchasing an ebook for $7. You become a supporter by purchasing a workout for $12. Or you become a super fan by purchasing a bundle for $19. I don't want to take advertising dollars. I want this to be a listener-supported podcast. By supporting the All About Fitness podcast, not only do you get great episodes, I try to put out four to five full-length interviews each month, but by supporting the podcast, you'll get access to exclusive content that'll help you learn how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. Thanks for your time. Now let's get back to the interview. But to talk about the connection between sexuality and fitness and health, and, and you talked about something earlier about body image, and one of the things that I really... In what I've written, the book I wrote, and, and I have another book coming out, and, and one of the reasons why I do this podcast, Doctor, is I'm trying to reframe fitness away from body image and, and more towards holistic, you know, being healthier, and being able to use exercise to manage the aging process and, and enhance the quality of life. And I think there's a huge... How big of a connection is there between like body image and sexuality? I mean, isn't that, I mean, how, and, and is there any way to move past that? Because I think in our society, and we can thank the media for this and thank Hollywood, is that we put this image out there that you're not, you can't be sexual unless you look a certain way. And so, I mean, do you get the question I'm asking is how do we tie or and how do we break through that, that, that sexuality is related purely to physical image? Yeah, you know, it's really complicated, right? Because of course, again, where, you know, many young people starting in, as kids or teenagers are exposed to social media and images like Instagram. There's some research showing, you know, poor body image among teenage girls who are on Instagram. And so there's a lot of sort of uh, information curation that I think parents would be advised to help teach their kids how to do because it actually forms the basis for their teenage and adult body image and sexuality. Um, you know, if you don't feel good about your body, it can be really hard to embrace your sexuality. And that's, that's across genders. I mean, I've seen, you know, certainly I grew up female and talked about those things with female friends. So I knew how young women often would feel about their bodies and maybe 
avoid certain sexual situations, avoid having sex, you know, unless it was dark or avoid certain positions because they didn't want their body to be seen in certain ways. But then when I started teaching him in sexuality, I would hear the same stories from the young men as well who would talk about, you know, I can, I still remember one man who said that he only wanted to be on top because it was the only way his, his chest would look strong. <laughs> and, um, and he didn't want to be on the bottom where he felt like he could look sort of softer or flabbier. And, um, and so we do know that for women and also for gay and bisexual men, that, that sort of concerns about their body image in particular can get in the way of just sexual arousal and pleasure while they're having sex. So they think so much about their bodies. Um, and, you know, across genders, everybody, everybody can be affected by this. I think there's some really provocative people, um, provocative thinkers like Sonali Rashitwar, who's on Instagram as the fat sex therapist. And she does this, you know, amazing job of trying to help people deconstruct those issues around bodies and sexuality. Um, you know, she recently was talking with me on a, a, a project uh, or a talk she gave. Um, and she was talking about this experience she had of watching like lots and lots of porn with what she called, you know, some of them like super fat people. And just even for her, this experience of watching so many hours of it in preparation for this workshop, she was she was leading that she's she really even herself as somebody in this area developed whole new perspectives and enjoyment of seeing people of size and porn. So a lot of it is that we're just not exposed to many different you know body types, whether it's in porn or Hollywood movies or TV. When it comes to sexuality, and everybody's going to have their own journey. But I think one thing we see that's pretty consistent in sex research is that it's not somebody's body or BMI that predicts their sexual pleasure. It's mm. how people feel about their bodies that predicts their sexual pleasure. So you really can have pleasurable, enjoyable sex at any size, at any BMI. But that takes really working with your own um, sort of sense of self um, to come to terms with, with how you're able to embrace your body. Well, it's interesting you say that because I went through a little phase in the last couple of months where I've been watching old 80s and 90s movies on Netflix again. Like um, what was what was the, the one I watched uh, with Anthony Hopkins and, and Clarice, uh, Silence of the Lambs. And I watched uh, Michael Douglas. Now I'm blanking on it. Um, Basic Instinct. And it's interesting to see because when you look back and these movies aren't that old, right? I mean, these movies were out when I was in high school and college in the 80s and 90s. But you can see how the movie stars, the images of the movie stars have evolved over the decades. And now they are over hyperly. I mean, you always had attractive people in the movies, but it seems to have, to have changed to a, to a, an exponential form all these years later. Now, and I will say this before, before I ask the next question. I used to be a personal trainer in a gym in Washington, D.C. that was in the gay neighborhood. And it really was very fascinating to watch the inner dynamics of the men and you could always tell and this is always a, f a funny anecdote doctor you could always tell that the the straight guys were the guys working out in their sweatshirts and with the ball caps on and maybe with they're wearing sweat clothes they, everybody was cool with it but you had the you had the gay dudes who were cruising or whatever looking for dates they'd be in their shorts and their tank tops and there's a very you could always walk through the gym and go okay you kind of got an idea of who identified as who and the funniest, not the funniest, but the, the busiest time in the gym was actually Saturday afternoons between 4.30 and 6. Everybody getting their pottery party pump on for the night. And so it's interesting to have worked in that environment and just been exposed to, to, to that kind of that subculture because it really is. I mean, it is fascinating to see the, the in that community, in the gay community, 
is the that body image is everything, and, and that body image really ties in there. And this is getting me to the question of what role does exercise play in sexual health? I mean, besides just having take the body image away, but what role does exercise play in supporting an active libido or, or an active sexual uh, sexual life? Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm certainly biased. I'm somebody who's loved exercise, you know, probably since they could crawl or walk. So I, I know I'm biased and I have to check that on bias because it's not important to everybody. Um, but some level of it is, right? We know that some level of movement is good for our hearts, is good for our cardiovascular system. And so I would say it's good to start there, right? And if we, one of the things I always try to get my college students to understand about sexual response. And when I say sexual response, I mean erections in, you know, I mean like penile erections, I mean vaginal lubrication, I mean those types of things. So if we think about physical sexual response, that is supported by the cardiovascular system. If you don't have good good blood flow, then you're not going to have reliable erections. If you don't have good blood flow, you're not going to have reliable vaginal lubrication. And so, you know, we depend on blood flowing into the genitals and those veins and arteries working well for those parts of our body to work well. So at minimum, we need sort of, you know, some level of movement, which is going to vary by person um, to support a healthy cardiovascular system for the body to work. Now for other people, exercise can also be a way that they connect with a partner. It can be part of foreplay. You know, they might like stretching with one another or exercising together. Um, for some people, a certain level of cardiovascular exercise is really what they need to feel like their strongest sense of sexual desire. I think our research in these areas is still fairly limited. I mean, anecdotally, I can tell you that, you know, I've heard from students or friends or colleagues over the years who will talk about, you know, they're generally pretty much into exercise, but when they boost that level even higher, some will talk about even, you know, more reliable or firmer erections or higher levels of desire. And that's not going to be true for everyone. But part of what, you know, we've seen in some of my research has um, crossed intersections of health um, or exercise and sex is that it is variable and you have to understand your own body and your own patterns. Um, so I think that that matters a lot too. What I don't think, you know, we want to do is prescribe, it's like with anything, you don't want to prescribe a certain type of, a certain set of exercise for every single person to do in order to have a good sex life. Cause that's, that's just not the case. Um, but we do know that movement helps. Sorry, I'm just going to cut in here one more time. I'll be very brief. I want to remind you that I'm doing hit at home workouts. Hit is high intensity interval training. These are 30 minute workouts. All you need is a set of dumbbells, a little bit of space and a device that can connect to the internet. And you can join me on Wednesdays and Fridays at 12 noon Pacific. That's Wednesdays and Fridays, 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, other times in between or in other time zones. I broadcast live. It's a great workout. Just about 30 minutes. You'll get strength training, core conditioning, and of course, high-intensity interval training. If you work hard, I guarantee you'll be burning more than 300 calories in 30 minutes. That's hit at home exclusively on Homeroom Fit, Wednesdays and Fridays, 12 noon Pacific. There's a link down below in the show notes. You already listened to the podcast. Now come join me for a workout and we can sweat together. Let's get back to the interview. And that's exactly why I wanted to speak with somebody in your area of expertise is because I want people realizing that not only is it important, I mean, we... What I get concerned about is we, we place so much emphasis on exercise for that purely aesthetic reason, 
just mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier. And and I really want people to reshift that focus, especially as we get into our 40s and 50s, that exercise is much less about what we look like in the mirror or what we look like, whatever. It's much more about good health. It's much more about being, you know, just being fit. And when, what I define fitness as, doctor, is having the ability to do what you want to do when you want to do it. And, and that means that you have the energy. And I love the way you said that because good cardiovascular health supports re- reproductive function. I know it supports blood flow to the different areas. Now, you wrote a book about this. And one of the things that that, that I was interested in is the concept of, of what you call a corgasm that people could actually experience an orgasm while exercising. And is that only females or is that a, can that apply to both men and women? Yeah, so it's it's males and females who can experience corgasm. Um, I can't take credit for the name that was um, coined by a men's health editor, I think in 2007, maybe, okay. um, maybe a little bit before that. But what had happened, uh, as I understand it from, from talking with some of them, is that they had published, as they do, you know, some some advice on different exercises. And there was one that was, I think it was a single leg squat. So really, really challenging exercise to do. And they just started getting these, you know, emails or letters or whatever it was, I think emails from people saying, you know, I tried that and this thing happened, right? And, and they, they were hearing from women in particular about having um, an orgasm while they were doing that. And so they they coined it, they wrote a little bit about it. Um, but it's something that has has not had not been studied at the time. So our study was the first study on it. And um, going back, Alfred Kinsey and his team, so sex researchers in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, had written a little bit about it. They didn't know about it either. And as they were interviewing these thousands of Americans about their sex lives, they wrote that some people started talking about this. So it wasn't a question they were even asking, but it would come up because they would ask questions like, so how old were you when you first had your orgasm and what was it from? And they had some people talk about things like sit-ups or climbing the rope in gym class. And so we we did a study about this some years ago now, and we um, actually first started interviewing women because we didn't know it happened to men at the time. Mm-hmm. And this study got so much attention. It was crazy. Like all around the world, people were were writing about the study. And be, when, it's, when people all around the world write about it in the media, what happens is you get emails from people all around the world. <laughs> so I was having to use Google Translate like every day oh, wow. to read some of these emails. And they were fascinating. And you know, sometimes as a sex researcher and educator, people think that I get a lot of like creepy emails and I really don't. I hardly ever do. People are are generally just curious and respectful. And I had so many emails, especially from men um, who were saying, you know, that they had read an article about our research with interest and that they wanted to let us know that this happens to men too. And we heard from men throughout Europe. We heard from men in South America. We heard from men throughout the U.S., and um, and they also described their experiences with a corgasm, which were remarkably similar to one another. Now, it's interesting because I, I didn't even think about this until you started mentioning the research. But I interviewed uh, Dr. Stuart McGill maybe two years ago sure. about, do you, I mean, do you know, I mean, I'm sure you saw the study on back pain, right? Yeah. So we actually got connected after the back pain study. And I shared with him, the him and his team about the corgasm um, research. And that was the first time he had heard about that as well. Yeah, and, and for listeners, um, it was an episode I actually re-ran. I, I replayed it maybe three or four months ago. But Dr. McGill studied back pain during sexual positions because, and I thought, but I thought that was a fascinating study, right? Because 
Yeah. yeah. Because he's an expert in, in spinal function. And just in, in what you said, doctor, he that blew up around the world. I mean, that study got, he got responses from everything. And I really think, and that's again, why I wanted, when I saw your, your, your work and your book, I wanted to invite you on the podcast because I think there's a strong correlation there between just movement being active and having that that healthy sex life. And, and what I got from I, I didn't get a copy of your book, so I apologize about that. I didn't read it, but I was trying to go through your blog um, and trying to go through you know information about it. And what I you, you did you do write about four core principles that that play a role in in supporting that. What are those What are those principles? And well. You talk about corgasm, but what are those principles? And I want to ask a little bit more about how exercise can support like orgasms and, and how people can reach sexual stimulation and climax. Yeah, you know, what we found in doing the corgasm research is that it wasn't random, right? And so I think what was striking was that people never, ever in our interviews or surveys said that they had an orgasm after like two sit-ups. Um, it was always after quite a bit. So, you know, one of the things that we talked about was that um, you really had to do exercises that were what we call core demanding. Mm. Um, if you wanted to experience either arousal or orgasm for, in this particular way from exercise. And so, you know, some, for example, some people would talk about experiencing the corgasms after eight or nine pull-ups, which are really hard to do eight or nine unassisted pull-ups, especially for, for females, right? So we had some females having orgasms at that stage, others after like 200 crunches or, you know, 60 leg lifts on the captain's chair and so on. So there was this level of doing, choosing an exercise that was core demanding, doing um, it usually for sufficient reps or sufficient time. So again, no one was having this after five minutes of running. It was like 20 to 30 minutes of running if it was a running thing, or um, we noticed a, a remarkable um, pattern of people having. Um, having either heightened arousal or even orgasm if they transitioned from a cardio exercise into a core demanding exercise. Mm -hmm. And so if there was, if they had sort of had time to recover, then they didn't see it as much. Um, so like if they did a spin class and then went and got some water and stretched a little before during their crunches, they weren't seeing it. But if they went from spin class to the mat, and started doing their crunches, they were more likely to have that arousal. So for that, we thought that there might be something going on with the sympathetic nervous system. We do know that um, even outside of exercise, that when you activate the sympathetic nervous system, that you can um, have easier arousal. Um, so, you know, so there were these sort of consistent patterns that we saw. Um, but I think, I, you know, I want to get back to one thing you mentioned about Dr. McGill's work too, because I think something that you know, that Stu has done that's so important is focused on functional fitness, right? It's not that you should stop doing certain things like, um, you know, like, like deadlifts or something like that, but he does make the, he tries to get people to think about longevity with fitness. And, you know, and so you mentioned that as well about sort of what's functional for people. And we don't focus on that with sex, Mm. Um, but it matters, right? So even when we think about how does exercise support a healthy sex life? Well, if there are certain sex positions that are meaningful to you, that are the ones that are more pleasurable or that you more often experience orgasm in, then you probably need to maintain some flexibility or strength to keep doing those. You know, so whatever supports your body being able to do those things will matter for an individual in terms of a healthy sex life. But the, but that's exactly where I want to get with this discussion is is how the two go hand in hand and and 
hearing you talk about this, my, my theory, just listening to this is how much would, how much would like dopamine and serotonin play? Meaning like a sense of accomplishment. If somebody's doing a harder workout, like a cycling class or like running on a treadmill, we get these neurotransmitters that they're kind of like the serotonin and dopamine provide that runner's high. And there are a couple other transmitters in there as well, but those are the ones I always remember and can pronounce. There's like adenine and, and a couple other ones. Um, but how much of it would be like a neurotransmitter issue versus like a friction issue? Because that's the other thing that you're talking about, like doing like captain's chair or doing sit-ups where you can have friction of tight – because a lot of exercise clothing is relatively tight, right? Like the tight-fitting clothing. So how much of it could be a friction issue versus a neurotransmitter issue? Did your study look at that at all? Was that something that, that – Yeah, we don't think – so we know that some people – notice some friction with their clothes, their genitals. And that's different than what we're talking about. Okay. So what we're talking about when we talk about the the exercise-induced orgasm or the corgasm is people who, and we've also done some like in-depth interviews with people and, and walk us through their exercise routine, walk us through how their body feels. And really what they describe is very internal. Um, uh, so even for example, like males who experience corgasm, I mean, it's fascinating to me because they don't experience the erection first. They go straight hmm. to ejaculation. And that, that suggests much more of a prostate, like an internal prostate stimulation than anything external. Um, and for the females, when we did in-depth interviews, what we noticed was that there were some of them who couldn't experience orgasm in any other way. Others who experienced orgasm through masturbation or through vaginal intercourse. But for the ones who had other types of orgasm that they could compare it to, not a single one compared um, like a corgasm to a, a stimulation of their, their outside parts of their clitoris. Everybody said it's, it's a lot like sort of like a deep penetration kind of orgasm. And so we don't understand how it works. Like we don't, but then again, we don't understand how sexual orgasm works that well either. We know a, a little bit more about it. Um, but I do hope that one day we we really sort of nail down what a corgasm is inside the body. Well, I, I want to make this point, and, and Doctor, you're just just for just so you know, you're the third PhD I've spoken to this week about various topics. And and the one thing that I, that I love about speaking with people in this field and listeners, yes, you're going to hear me say this again. But one thing I love about that is when you speak to a scientist who studies a certain area. There's a lot more they don't know as opposed to what they know about the human body. And I'm just making this point because even when it comes to muscle building or getting stronger or cardiorespiratory fitness, a good scientist won't tell you, well, exactly why this is happening. They'll say they won't tell you with any definitive result. Like we know this for sure. Like Miguel too will be like, well, we're not sure. This is what we've observed. What's, what, how does that scientific process play out? in your field in sexual health. I mean, because I'm sure you have to use the surveys and you have to, because you can't come up with any general. And what I always, always tell people listening to this podcast is the more definitive answer somebody gives you, the less you want to pay attention to it. Meaning that if a personal trainer or a fitness instructor says, this is what you want to do, don't pay any attention to it. Someone who's educated to say, well, that depends. Let's take a look at your current situation and look at these different variables. But getting back to the research, when it comes to research on sexual health, how do you, how are you able to control the studies in order to really get some information that gives you an idea about what's going on in the body? Well, you know, for that study, um, yeah, it, it just varies so much. And, and I mean, I love the uncertainty of all of this, right? So anyone who's doing research like likes the questions and that's why we're here. So we're comfortable with uncertainty. 
with the Corgasm interviews, what what we did there was I paired up with a trainer. Um, and so we did it, we did it together. She was not a sex researcher. I was not a physical trainer. And um, but we talked through it. She was very open minded. Um, she has had a very sort of, um, you know, just gentle demeanor, um, very curious person. And so we um, so we took over some lab space in our School of Public Health uh, in the kinesiology area. And we had and we were it was great. I mean, a professor gave us some stuff. We bought some physical exercise equipment. I bought like a a captain's chair. I bought a yoga ball. I bought some mats. I bought some weights. I bought the things that we thought people might use when they have their corgasms. And so we would have them like talk us through everything. And the trainer who did the interviews with me was just brilliant because she would, you know, she knew things that I didn't know about the body. So if people would describe something, she would, she would sort of, you know, interject and say, well, you know, when you when you talk about it, you're feeling it in such and such muscle. Can you can you show me? Can you point to the muscle or does it feel like this or does it feel like that? We had posters of human anatomy of the core abdominal muscles. And so that would help us sort of, you know, check in with people. And then we would ask them to do the exercise in front of us, not to the point of orgasm, but we wanted to see how they held their body hmm. and how they moved their body and and sort of what they were doing. So in that study, that's how we paired up. Um, and uh, and then we did explore with some colleagues, some some other more lab-based research as well. And then there's other studies that we do that aren't about, you know, exercise and, and orgasm, but uh, we have great ways as scientists to either really probe through interviews or to use established measures of things like some other research I'm doing now looks at the intersections of certain types of sex and depression and anxiety and um, and headaches and, and other things. So we have like really good established um, measures, questionnaire measures that we can use to understand a little bit about the mental or physical health state. But you're right. I mean, I sorry if I could just say really quickly. I will say when the corgasm research came out, I was really surprised and disappointed at the number of so-called sex experts who weighed in in the media, who were eager to say, "Oh, sure, you know, exercise orgasms happen because of this or happen because of that." Right? Everybody had this certain answer, and it was amazing to me because literally our study was the first one ever, and yet they were acting as if our field knows how these orgasms happen. And so I think, you know, you're right. Like we should be very cautious when people um, have a very easy pad explanation. They all contradicted each other, uh, <laughs> but, but it was, but it was fascinating to read where I thought, you know, it's okay to not know, right. It's okay to say, I don't know. It's interesting. Let's talk about it. But, um, but we don't know everything yet about the body. And, and see, that's where I think that's one of the things I love. And to be frank, that's one of the reasons why I started the podcast is when I go to fitness events and I, as a speaker and I, I do a lot of education, we have a lot of these conversations. I have a lot of these conversations with my colleagues and there is a lot more that we don't know than we know. And it's always fascinating to ask those questions and, and to read through the research. Now, to getting ready to wrap up, I want to ask you about another book. So you wrote Corgasm and I want to ask you about another book you wrote, Great in Bed. In terms of, and that's going to give me to kind of the final conversation. I asked, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but what, what, what do you cover in Great in Bed? What, what, why'd you write the book, and what's it address? Yeah, I wrote that book with my colleague Grant Stoddard, who's a, a sex columnist and just this really fantastic person and, and journalist. And we covered everything from like you know just understanding um, anatomy, whether your own or a partner's anatomy, 
communication, birth control, STIs. I mean, really sort of like a sex 101 for most young adults who or or middle-aged adults who never got that education earlier on um, and who need a primer to support their relationships, to support their sexual creativity, um, to support creating a, a more exciting sex life with somebody. And and that's and again this, this brings up the final thing and I kind of asked about this earlier but for people listening that maybe like there's some there's an avenue maybe there's a kink they want to explore with their partner or maybe there's something that they want to do that they've been a little bit um unsure about number one kinks aren't a bad thing right because again I think a lot of it comes from the family background but when you look at, at different areas and I'm sure I might not be using the correct uh, academic term in terms of kink but I think in terms of expressing as an interest, that's not abnormal, is it? I mean, that's a relatively normal, from my understanding, is it's a relatively normal part of sexuality, right? Yeah, so we we do use the term kink. We're t- okay. totally using that term in science as well. <laughs> okay. so, um, and, you know, I think what, yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's human sexuality and human sexual expression is just diverse. It is all over the map. Most people do not identify as um, as kinky or as BDSM engaged, but when you ask them what they do, most people actually do things that we would consider like kinky or BDSM-y or things like that. So most people do play with power. Most people have sometimes, you know, done things like tried having sex in public or where somebody might hear them. If you've ever had sex in a hotel room and thought it might be sexy that somebody might hear you having sex, that's about playing with power, right? If you've ever sort of slapped somebody gently while having sex, that's also about playing with power. Um, So most people have engaged in light spanking, for example. Example. You know, I think um, the one thing I would say as, as sort of sex has changed and it is changing is that we are seeing more people um, engage in what they call choking during sex. Mm-hmm. So using like hands or belts or scarves. Um, and you mentioned also having, you know, a, a, an ex-wife who's a law in law enforcement. So, you know, like, you know, that, that this can, this is often a, a part of sexual assaults as well. So now we're seeing this as part of consensual sex in really um, in really prevalent numbers, really high numbers for young people, for teenagers and for young adults. And mm. so I think that's the only thing that I would put some caution in is that, um, you know, that type of behavior, which is actually a form of strangulation, it's not good to cut off oxygen to the brain, right? Like, so no. that... That, that does increase, you know, uh, risks of mental health issues and physical health issues, including death. Um, and so we, you know, so that's, I think, one of the few sort of, you know, kink behaviors, if you will, or some people might call it a rough sex behavior that I would say, let's like think and talk about that one a little bit more critically. Um, but most of the other ones are not harmful to people. And they're just ways that people play with sex the way that across our whole lives we play, whether it's with toys as kids, with exercise across the lifespan um, or hobbies, right? It's just another way of exploring oneself. Well, let me just, let me just reframe this again. So it's okay to play with sex and enjoy sex. Because yeah. I still, I think, I think so many people have grown up with this belief, whether they grew up in a certain um, religious tradition or whether they grew up in a certain family, that, that sex only had this, this one purpose of procreation. And it's not something you can enjoy. Whereas... Then when you get a little bit older, it's perfect. I just want to make sure that it kind of give you an opportunity because you, I thought you said it so well, but it's perfectly okay to enjoy and play with sex as we get it, as we be, as we're adults and consenting. Yeah. Let me, let me, let me be clear. Consenting yeah. adults. Yeah. Consenting adults. And Hey, you know, states have different ages. So I will say consenting older teenagers. And I, I want to say that too, because sometimes we so often, 
um, put teenagers in this bucket of like, they're not supposed to be sexually active. And yet most teenagers are, are sexually active to some extent at some point, right? Starting out with themselves through masturbation, moving on to like kissing, moving on to like breast or chest touching. I mean, it evolves. And I also want to make sure, so yeah, we don't have that dividing line. So for parents who are, who are of teenagers out there knowing that you can support them, but certainly as an adult for consensual sex, like explore, have fun, talk with your partners, find out what you like, share what you like and what you don't like and all of that. Well, doctor, I really appreciate today. It's Dr. Debbie Herbenick. You're the author of the Corgasm Workout, Great in Bed. And where can people get more information? I'm going to have a couple of links down below to your books, but where can people get more information about the work that you're doing or find out about any studies that might, might be forthcoming? Yeah, we um, have a great website at the Center for Sexual Health Promotion at Indiana University, which is just sexualhealth.indiana.edu. Wow, that was a fun and insightful interview. And now I'm thinking back to, to my college years and wishing that my college had offered a class like that or a class with a, with a professor like Dr. Herbenick. Because how helpful is it to hear, to hear this talk, to talk about sexual health or to talk about sex as a component of overall health? And I do, I mean this, in my experience, and this is just my personal experience, people have a lot of different attitudes about sex. And the fact is, what's important is that you be on the same wavelength with your partner. And that just, that can make such a big difference. And it was fun to talk to Dr. Herbenick and get her insight because, as I mentioned in the beginning, I want you to know more about how fitness plays a role in your overall health and wellness. And yes, sex is an important component of that. I, Dr. McGill was on the podcast a while ago, and I reran that episode not too long ago. Dr. McGill did the research about back pain and sexual positions. And that's very important because if you experience back pain while you're having intercourse, you're not going to want to do it because it's uncomfortable. And what I wanted to do is bring a different perspective and have Debbie talk about her research in her book to help you learn how to maybe have a different approach or help you learn maybe how to have a tough conversation or a needed conversation with, with your partner. That was my goal. And my goal for All About Fitness is to really help you understand how exercise can play a role in enhancing all areas of your life. Because I know, yes, a lot of times we think about exercise just for weight loss or just for appearance, but exercise can also give us confidence. As we've heard other people talk about, exercise can enhance our brain power. And in this case, exercise can enhance our ability to perform with our loved one and our specific loved one. And that was that's my goal for having Dr. Herbenick on. So Debbie, I appreciate your time. If you're listening to this, I really appreciate the conversation. And I want to say thank you for your work and for the ability to have this conversation with my audience. And for listeners of All About Fitness, if you have any comments, please feel free to reach out to me, Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. That's Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. And hey, if you're interested in learning more about exercise, go to my website, go to PeteMcCallFitness.com, sign up for my mailing list. And what I will do is I'll send you a chapter for my book, Smarter Workouts, so you can try it before you buy it. Again, PeteMcCallFitness.com, sign up for my mailing list and get a free chapter of Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple. With that, as always, thank you for stopping by. And I do look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.